Many of you know I'm a true advocate for taking supplementation to optimize your health. And one of the best things that you can do is to choose the right collagen. It's a building block for your entire body. I was introduced to the Sparkle Wellness product, the Skin Boost Plus, about a year ago, and I've been taking it ever since. Having struggled with growing my hair out while I was prepping for the Mrs. America pageant, the Skin Boost Plus product could not have come at a better time. It's formulated with a special bioactive collagen known as Verisol. Verisol collagen is scientifically proven to reduce the fine lines underneath the eyes, around the mouth, and also grow stronger and healthier hair. It truly is feeding your beauty from the inside out. Skin Boost Plus not only contains the Verisol collagen, but it contains hyaluronic acid as well as vitamin C, which aids in skin health and boosts your immunity. This is super important these days. In addition, Skin Boost Plus Sparkle Wellness offers a collagen supplement formulated for joint health called Joint Boost and a collagen supplement formulated for promoting lean muscle mass called Muscle Boost. So we've got the Sparkle Collagen, the Muscle Boost, and the Joint Boost. And right now, you can get any of the Sparkle Wellness Collagen Supplements from Amazon or from their website, which is lovesparkle.life, and you can use my code. It's Dr. Fit. that's D-R-F-I-T, and that will get you 20% off their delicious range of collagen products for skin, joint, and muscles. Thank you to Sparkle for your amazing products and for sponsoring the Fit and Fabulous podcast. to the Fit and Fabulous podcast with Dr. Jamie Seaman. Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Jamie, and welcome back to the Fit and Fabulous podcast. I'm super excited that you're back with us today. And once again, I always appreciate people that have listened to previous episodes. Every time you download it, like it, you leave reviews, you share it on your social media, you just help us spread these really important topics around the world. So much appreciation for that. Well, today's guest is Alan Aragon, and I'm super, super excited about this. He sent me his new book before it was even released, and we're going to tell you all about it. But he is a nutrition researcher and educator. He's got over 25 years of success in this field. He's known as one of the most influential figures in the fitness industry movement towards evidence-based information. His notable clients include Stone Cold Steve Austin, Derek Fisher, and Pete Sampras. Alan writes a monthly research review providing cutting-edge theoretical and practical information, and Alan's work has been published in popular magazines as well as peer-reviewed scientific literature. He co-authored Nutrient Timing Revisited, the most viewed article in the history of the Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. He also is the lead author of the ISSN Physician Statement on Diets and Body Composition. Alan maintains a private practice designing programs for recreational and professional athletes, and of course, just regular people like you and I striving to be their best. So Alan, welcome to the Fit and Fabulous podcast. Thank you so much, Jamie. You are far from regular, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. I We're all humans. I think that's one of the things, you know, in the social media world is people maybe have a vision that like you or I have some sort of magical superpower, but the truth is we really don't. <laughs> right. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. People uh, post on social media that they just wake up and kill it. You know, I just wake up and overthink it. Yeah. 
I don't have time to overthink it. I just book myself so solid that I don't have time to overthink hey, it. So. <laughs> I, could, I could learn a thing or two from that. Yeah, I don't, I don't sit still very well. So Alan, I'm super excited to talk about this new book. And for everybody on YouTube, you can see it in Apple Podcasts. Uh, we're not going to describe it, so go watch YouTube. <laughs> but uh, his book, Flexible Dieting, just came out and uh, you can go get it. Alan, tell people where they can get this book. You can get it anywhere that books are sold any major bookseller um you can yeah yeah just (laughs) it's everywhere so perfect perfect so it's a science-based reality tested method for achieving maintaining your optimal physique performance and health i have read it and i think this is an amazing piece of work alan because i think one of the difficulties in our field is you know being a practicing clinician And then you have researchers that talk in research language and clinicians talk in clinician language. And then you have the patient or the client at the end of it and figuring out how to synthesize all that information so that everybody understands it. We're all on the same page. So I think this book was written so wonderfully. There's tons of pictures. There's tons of color. It's really engaging. It's not boring. Like it just keeps going. And there's kind of a summation at the end of each chapter. And then at the end of the book, a summation of like the whole book. So really reinforces, you know, all the important topics. So you guys really should go check it out. We're going to break down some of the topics here in this book, but Alan, tell us about your work and what you do and how this book ever came to fruition. In a nutshell, I'm somebody who originally was a personal trainer who got kind of pulled into the research world. And somewhere along the way, I, I spent a decade doing nutritional counseling. So um, that that's kind of the story. And <clears throat> I guess I, I was one of the originators of, of bringing the evidence-based model to the fitness industry. Um, this was, oh, I, w- I want to say like 10, 15 years back when, when it really started picking up momentum, like having a research basis for your opinions on things on nutrition and stuff. So um, I was one of the, the first guys to sort of bring that forth into the community. So that's, that's basically who I am. And oh, my colleagues and I have done a lot of the research that form the non-clinical practice guidelines for, for nutritionists and, and trainers and, and coaches and stuff. So yeah, it's kind of the wild, wild west out there. Cause you have mm-hmm. doctors who where nutrition is probably a primary intervention for a lot of things that don't really know much about nutrition. (laughs) And then you've got, you know, registered dietitians and nutritionists, and then you've got these trainers in between that a lot of them think they know everything about doctoring and nutrition. And so I think it leaves people, you know, really confused. Mm -hmm. So talk to us about, you know, the book is called flexible dieting. Talk Mm -hmm. to us about the difference between rigid and flexible dieting. I've certainly been on a lot of diets in my life. Yeah. Um, flexible dieting refers to a type of, uh, dietary restraint or dietary control. So like you said, there's rigid dietary control and there's flexible dietary control or restraint. And, um, unlike the misconception that flexible dieting is all about counting macros. I mean, that, that could be one of the approaches you choose to take, but flexible dieting is really about not approaching food and dieting in an all or nothing black or white dichotomous type of way. So um, flexibility applies to food selection as everybody knows. And some people take that a little too far. Uh, well, well, you know, getting all their carbs from pop tarts and whatnot. Um, <clears throat> and flexibility also 
um, it applies to the dietary approach. So some people like a lot more um, specific and, and granular and, and highly sort of micromanaged types of approaches, while others take, uh, they prefer a lot looser, more qualitative, more habits-based types of approach. And certainly you can cycle through that whole spectrum through the course of the year, if you're an athlete on season, off season, et cetera. And so, yeah, flexible dieting is basically saying there's no one size that fits all. Like not everybody has to intermittent fast. Not everybody has to be on keto or paleo or whatever it is that, you know, that, that you might have a tendency towards. So it's, everything has to be individualized. And I think that might be the biggest thing about my book is individualized stuff to make it sustainable. I love that. I love that. One of the things I always tell my patients is like, be your own expert, like try something, see how you feel, see if it's working for you just because your mom or your cousin or whoever had success with one thing doesn't mean it's, you know, the right thing for you. And I think that's where people get down a lot of rabbit holes and mm-hmm. social media and the internet is, <laughs> like I said, they're looking for magic. They're looking for superpowers or, or whatever it is that is like, this is it. Like this mm-hmm. is the ultimate and there will never be that. I mean, that's just when you think of humans, like we all came from different parts of the world, different genetics, you know, we live in different environments and are interact with different things. So I think that that, you know, individuality is, is so important, but tell us why, because you are very into evidence-based and what does the research show? Why is there so much confusion? I mean, you can go to the internet and people are like, be vegan, be carnivore, do fasting, don't do fasting. And it's, you could have people arguing on every single side of every debate. Why is there so much confusion? Well, a couple of reasons. Um, number one, everybody eats. And so everybody has, they have a sense of dominion over the nutrition realm and a sense of communicating what they're passionate about as far as food goes, because everybody eats. And it's not like everybody, uh, lawyers or engineers. So you don't hear everybody chiming in on that, <laughs> that sort of stuff, but everybody eats. So, um, there, there's an emotional element tied in with, um, nutrition and diet and how we, how it makes us feel and how it makes us feel about the control we have over our lives. And if we're successful at it, then heck, we're going to pipe up about it and let everybody know. And some people are going to tell everybody what's exactly right for everyone. Right. So, um, that's number one, everybody eats, uh, number two, um, there is lack of scientific literacy, generally speaking, in, in, in the general public. And even amongst a lot of the, the fitness industry, there's just mainly a lot of regurgitating of things people think they know because science is complicated and the body of data is a pain in the butt to keep up with. Um, and there are always these sort of evolving understandings and findings that we have to kind of stay on top of just to really sort of know the state of the evidence on stuff. And that's a pain in the butt. So, (laughs) and another thing, there is a wide range of diets that work similarly well for everybody. And that's where a lot of the confusion comes from people not acknowledging or realizing that there is a wide range of, it doesn't matter. (laughs) It's just a wide range of it, especially in terms of um, macronutrition and health and to a certain degree, uh, macronutrition and performance. So the body, uh, the human body can pretty much handle and put to work whatever you throw at it in terms of macronutrition. Um, uh, Even in terms of, in terms of food selection, the body can survive and thrive on such a wide range of, of different 
permutations of the diets. And that's why it's confusing. It's because the human body is so adaptable and um, so able to just work perfectly fine on such a wide range of different things that when people say, okay, this is the one best way, everybody is saying the, a, a different, this is the one best way. And that's why it's confusing. And people can't, the, the average person off the street can't investigate the, uh, the evidence base of a given diet to see whether it's valid or whether it, you know, what, what, what the strength of the evidence is. And so there's a lot of confusion with that. And not only that, but sometimes people's financial motives override their um, their scientific or academic integrity. So they're just selling stuff regardless of whether the, the stuff is actually valid or not. And so that adds to the mix of confusion. Are you telling me that detox teas don't work, Alan? <laughs> <laughs> hey, girl. <laughs> I thought you said the body was adaptive. <laughs> well, you know what? Hey, we wouldn't be on Instagram if those things didn't work. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna break down kind of like what to look for in research, but you know, I can imagine that there's somebody driving in their car right now that listens to what you're saying that you know a lot of it doesn't matter. The body can you know deal with lots of macronutrients, but from my perspective as a clinician, like we're not healthy, you know, the highest rates of obesity and cancer and heart disease than we've ever seen, not amongst adults, but even amongst children, you know, insulin resistance, diabetes. So, I mean, talk to us about like, when you say it doesn't matter, does it mean like just eating whole foods and the macronutrients don't matter? Is it just maintaining calories? Give us a little bit of context. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, good question. Good qualifier. Um, when I say it doesn't matter, I'm talking about the full range of um, very low carb, very high fat, uh, all the way to um, low fat, high carb. Granted that your protein is good. Mm -hmm. So there is a, a wide range of variation with specific regard to fat and carbohydrate proportion of the diet. Um, total calories have to be in check. Food selection, uh, diet quality has to be in check um, because there's not a lot of variation of what you can get away with in terms of having a low quality, a crappy diet uh, versus a high quality diet and live a long, healthy life. But there is certainly a lot of variation macronutritionally with specific regard to uh, carbs and fat proportion in the diet that, that you can that you can get away with that. It really doesn't matter unless you're a competitive athlete, um, unless you have specific performance goals. And, uh, and even in that realm, there's, there's a lot of wiggle room for variation. So uh, a high quality diet would be one that consists mostly of whole and minimally refined, minimally processed foods. And the minority of the calories can come from the YOLO type foods, you know, the alcohol and desserts, et cetera. But as long as the majority, 80 ish, 90 ish percent, I mean, it is kind of a subjective figure. 80, 90% of the diet is coming from the wholesome stuff. Uh, then you're good. I like that. I like that. Yeah. So we're going to dive into those macronutrients for everybody so we can kind of talk about them individually, but let's go back to the research for just a second. Yeah. In your book, you kind of have this great graphic that talks about the difference between descriptive, observational, and experimental research. Can you just tell people kind of the, 
the overview of the difference between those types of research and what we're really looking at when we're thinking, you know, this is gold standard. Because I think that, you know, people can just read abstracts on the internet and, you know, research sometimes can be somewhat subjective depending on what, you know, the study design was. You're really going to go here, aren't you? You're, you're the first... <laughs> You're the first person who's interviewed me who's, who's asked me this question. So it, it's pretty, pretty cool, pretty cool. So kudos to that. All right, so descriptive research are just case studies and, and historical accounts, just, just literally relaying what happened with, a, with an individual or, or with an environment and, and an individual. And, and so that's just almost like a, um, the, the, the term is, is directly descriptive of, of the process. So that's descriptive research. And then, and, and technically, technically it's un, under the umbrella of observational research, but, but we'll get to that. So as we move along the continuum from descriptive, observational to experimental. So observational research is usually what people interchangeably call epidemiology. So epidemiology is, is under the umbrella of observational research. And, and all this this type of research I've been talking about, you don't intervene, you don't control the variables, you just kind of observe and record and make inferences. So obs under observational research, you've got cohort studies, you got um, cross-sectional studies, and the prospective cohort studies are sort of the, the gold standard of, of observational research, but you're still not comparing and intervening groups. You're still not manipulating any variables in, in the study. Where that happens is on the other end of the continuum um, with randomized controlled trials, where you actually do have a experimental group that you basically feed them the, the treatment or the protocol in question that you wanna check the effect of, and then you compare it to some sort of control condition that does not have that, that X factor that you want to investigate the effect of. So that is experimental research right here with randomized controlled trials. And then you've got observational research over here with the cohort studies and, and the cross-sectional studies and the case control type studies. And then you've got, you've got your uh, observational research here, just individuals, case studies, or rather, I'm sorry, descriptive research with um, case studies and historical studies and et cetera. So the main types of research that we see in the literature are your observational stuff, uh, epidemiology under that, and experimental research. So the randomized controlled trials, the, the kind of the key little kicker between observational research and experimental research is that observational research is what I call causation challenged because it is very difficult and a lot of times impossible to establish cause and effect relationships in observational research. And there's a whole technical debate about that, believe it or not, going on. Um, but instead of getting into the weeds with that, I would rather say observational research is causation challenge, whereas randomized control trials are the best types of research at establishing cause and effect. So. Now, the limitation with observational research, uh, aside from its um, inability or often inability to establish cause and effect, is that um, you lack control of the variables and therefore you can at best generate hypotheses about what you've observed. So you can establish certain 
certain correlations, certain associations, but you mainly can generate hypotheses that are subject to more rigorous testing in the controlled conditions of experimental research. Now, here's the weakness of experimental research and randomized controlled trials, okay? So with randomized controlled trials, oftentimes it involves small numbers of participants or subjects and short trial durations. And there's other issues like, did we make the experiment reflect? And a lot of times it doesn't. Now, the strength of observational research like epidemiology, the strength of that is that you can examine large populations of people for long periods of time, mm -hmm. and you can investigate disease endpoints. So you can follow a group of people until their death, and then you can make inferences about what may have influenced that. The problem with randomized controlled trials, even though you can establish cause and effect in, in most cases, you still can't follow large populations for a period of decades and follow disease endpoints. So therefore, we need both types of research and we shouldn't dismiss epidemiology and nor randomized control trials. We need them both. We need a convergence of evidence in order to strengthen our confidence in whatever we think we believe. And that is the job of these types of studies. Yeah, so it's difficult to study um, it's difficult to control all of the variables. It, there is subjectivity involved, right? When you're saying that just because something's correlated doesn't mean it's causative. Um, and then for somebody like me at the end of the day, I have to take all this research and decide how it applies clinically to, you know, people that I treat. And so, yes. but I think that we're living in a day and age where, um, we have, for better or for worse, and I don't know if I even want to use the word more informed, but, you know, patients are coming to me with studies, you know, I found this information. Now there is still a lot of research that's behind, you know, you got to pay for it, you know, to be able to see anything more than the abstract to actually see, you know, what the, what the study design was. But I think that, um, with the advent of social media and the internet, this stuff is disseminated a lot quicker, you know, for better or for worse. And so I think it's important that people kind of understand that, um, there's different types of studies. They all play a role in increasing our knowledge base. Mm -hmm. um, with time, some things are are disproven. Sometimes there are political agendas behind them. So you have to be your own, you know, kind of detective as you as you look through these things and and figure out how to interpret them. And at the end of the day, like we said, you know, figure out be your own expert. I mean, at the end of the day, it's your ultimate decision what you incorporate into your life or don't. So. Yeah. Okay, so let's dive into these macronutrients a little bit. Mm. What I heard you say earlier when I said, you know, you say it didn't matter, as you said, as long as protein is is there, then maybe the other two macronutrients, you know, it doesn't matter which side of the uh, teeter-totter they're, they're sitting on. So yeah. I normally end my podcast with something called the semen analysis, but today, you guys, I'm inserting <laughs> it mid-episode uh, just, for, just for Alan. <laughs> and uh, of course I had to pull one of his studies that he did with Brad Schoenfeld. Um, cool. <laughs> so this was the journal of international society of sports nutrition. And basically the title of it is how much protein can the body use in a single meal for muscle building implications of daily protein distribution. And, um, it's been interesting in the evolution of my own diet, Ellen, I was a collegiate athlete, you know, but I never thought about, I mean, we had sports nutrition coaches, like all of this, but I'd never in my life thought about prioritizing protein with each meal. 
I was certainly taking some protein shakes here and there, but as an adult, um, when I ran into my own health problems with pre-diabetes, um, I have noticed that prioritizing protein has made a huge difference for me, uh, in the gym, body composition, performance, um, all things. And now I'm a huge advocate as a woman, uh, because I take care of people in women's health and women are horrible at eating protein. I just had a patient this week who is trying to make, uh, better, you know, lifestyle choices. And she's like, I'm really struggling to get 50 grams of protein a day. I'm like, 50 grams. <laughs> right. We have that by I, noon. I, I can do that in a meal. Like yeah. why, what's so yeah. hard about this? So, um, so I really want to highlight this. So basically there's a lot of controversy about how much, you know, you should. And I think that the, I think the RDA for protein is, is set too low because as we age, we develop more anabolic resistance. We're not as effective at, at utilization of these amino acids. So this is why I just want to highlight this for everybody. But basically, um, this was more of a summation uh, research that Alan and Broad, you know, put out looking at different studies out there that determined how much protein somebody should take in and how many meals you should spread it out into, right? We're talking, is it one, is it two, three, four, five, six, but basically based on the current evidence, they concluded that target intake of about 0.4 grams per kilogram per meal if you ate four meals or a minimum of 1.6 grams per kilogram per day seem to be the most effective. So Alan, talk to us about protein and why it's probably in my eyes and your eyes, the most important macronutrient. It, it It's definitely, it's a non-negotiable, um, starting with your mentioning of the RDA, that is a 40-year-old guideline that really needs updating, but for reasons unknown to most people, it just isn't getting updated. I mean, it's not even nudged up to like 1.2, which would make a which would make a significant difference in in people's health. Uh, and even the position stands or the consensus statements of of the uh, various agencies that that look at the health requirements of older adults the RDA is, is consistently just blown right past it. And then we're, you know, we're looking at 1.2, 1.5 and, and, and up in some cases. And so, so yeah, protein is, is critical. And, and it's kind of uh, the one thing that unites all properly uh, formulated diets is, is the protein component because people have different goals and people have different preferences athletically and, and other that would dictate differences in carbohydrate and fat, but protein kind of is what it is. Uh, when, when Brad and I wrote that review paper that, that you mentioned, uh, we were looking at what is the maximal amount of protein you can have to, to, uh, hit that anabolic ceiling per meal. Like what, what is what, what's the maximal amount of protein you can eat in a single meal to maximize? Well, what we, what we look at as, a uh, the acute anabolic effect, which is measured in um, as mu muscle protein synthesis. That's sort of the short-term index of what might result in muscle growth over time. So the amount of protein that maximizes muscle protein synthesis, like you mentioned, it appears to be somewhere between 0.4 to 0.6 grams per kilogram of body weight. And that in, in most folks will translate to 30 ish to up to 50 ish grams per meal. And with the 
total daily protein intake that maximizes muscle, muscle growth being somewhere between 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight per day, then roughly four meals set at 0.4 to 0.6 grams per kilogram of body weight per day is going to net you that 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight per day with total protein. And sure, if, if you, there are contexts where protein feeding and specifically the distribution through the day or the meal frequency or number of doses and the placement of them, et cetera, certain contexts don't really matter where you truly just focus on the total amount of protein by the end of the day. And really don't worry about the details. Don't worry about the constituent doses of that protein intake. If you're not specifically trying to maximize muscle growth. So if in dieting conditions, interestingly, there's been such a wide range of, of protein feeding frequency and distribution that works just as good as each other for, for maintaining muscle while dieting. So whether it's one, two, three, four, five, six meals a day, uh, similar results um, and similar retention of lean mass, interestingly, has been seen with low protein frequency, highly constrained um, protein feedings, like concentrated within short feeding windows, uh, even eating every other day, like every other day um, fasting has been shown to just re retain muscle just fine um, compared to the control conditions. And uh, there are limitations and nuances to go into this. I mean, I wouldn't take uh, high, uh, lean resistance trained people. I wouldn't expect them to maintain their lean body mass equally to um, <laughs> on an every other day feeding program to a right. conventional thing. But, you know, when you're looking at people in the general population and you're looking at muscle retention while dieting, the whole 0.4 to 0.6 grams per kilogram guideline with protein per meal, it kind of goes out the window because it doesn't really matter to them. It doesn't really apply to them. But if you're, if you're, if you're athlete, if you're an athlete, or if you are athletic, and if you're trying to push the envelope a little bit, um, you're not, you know, fresh off the couch, you've been training for a while and you want to pull out all the hypothetical stops, um, in the way of muscle anabolism, then you would go with, with that scheme and then take it from there. So there's, just different contexts, different populations to look at it. Muscle growth, you might want to do that type of scheme. But if it if you're dieting, just hit the total daily amount of protein and don't worry about any particular um, meal feeding distribution scheme. I would make the argument that maybe people need to have more of a mentality of being an athlete. <laughs> hey, um, I, because I think I, it makes you a little bit harder to kill. I mean, I just... Me too. I, especially for women, age-related sarcopenia, you know, people start starting fat in their muscles. If a patient comes in and says they want to lose hundred pounds, I certainly don't want them losing, you know, a lot of, of lean body mass with that, with that weight loss. Certainly we're probably going to see, you know, some, but I think that there's some evidence out there to suggest that if you eat a higher percentage of your calories from protein, even with massive weight loss, we can see a lot of, of lean body mass retention. Yes, definitely. And the whole idea that older adults somehow need less protein than, than, younger athletic adults, it's really beginning to be questioned because 
when you're training for a while, if you're, if you've been physically active and training throughout your whole adult life, then your muscle quality, even at the, you know, at the micro levels, isn't a whole hell of a lot different than it was when you were younger. And so the, the requirements, the dosing requirements don't necessarily change much at all. And so I've got a, a paper in review right now that makes the argument that older adults should have the same dang protein requirements as, as younger athletes. We, that's the targets that they should be because chronologically older muscle could still be biologically very similar. So it makes no sense to tell older folks to ease back, go down to 1.2 now because of the ESPN guidelines and stuff like that. No, stick with 1.6 to 2.2, even if you're 80 years old, man, let's go. Yeah, I can't agree more with that. So um, is it just dietary protein or amino acid intake, or would somebody be required to be doing a certain level of activity or resistance training? Yeah, it um, it's a marriage of the two. I mean, there there is a body of research showing that simply increasing your protein, like higher protein intakes, can contribute to the to gains in lean mass, and that would make sense just from uh, the standpoint of providing more of the raw materials to build lean mass. But it, you can only go so far with that. Um, the resistance training has to be in place in order to uh, just maximize and optimize all of the adaptations. I love that. Yeah. I say eat meat and lift heavy things. <laughs> um, okay, was, can, can I just tell you, I, I yeah. was, I was talking to my, my, my 16 year old baby. I call them my baby still, but they're, you know, my 18 and my 16 year old, I still see them as my baby boys. I'm like, I wish I could still carry you. And they're like, dad. So <laughs> we're talking about alcohol. And, um, and I, I quit drinking four years ago and, and I, I told my son, I'm like, you know what? I really do think I could drink in, in moderation, but I won't just to give you guys the family peace of mind. And, but the one thing that I won't give up is, is chocolate because I love it too much and coffee. I love it too much and steak. Cause I love it too much. So as long as I can have those three things, man, you can take the alcohol. We're good. <laughs> so. I love it. I love it. Okay. So talk to us about, you know, we've talked about protein requirements per meal or in a 24 hour period or whatnot mm -hmm. as an average over time, talk to us about the use of like whey protein or protein supplements, BCAs or leucine, like when we say, you know, protein, is it specifically leucine content or where would things like whey protein, BCAs, or additional leucine be helpful for somebody? It kind of goes, it goes like this. It's, it's like, um, the tiers are adequate total daily protein from whole food sources, from high quality whole food sources. So sufficient daily protein from that. that, that would be the top tier because not only are you getting enough protein and within that, not only are you getting enough essential amino acids and within that, the branch chain amino acids and within those enough leucine, but you're getting a constellation of other beneficial essential and, and non-essential nutrients. And so you're just getting the, in quotes, the, the matrix of, of nutrition with whole 
high quality protein sources. So that would be the top tier. And then when you're, you're doing that, you technically you don't need to supplement with um, amino acids uh, or, or and of any type, whether it be the branch chain amino acids or whether it be leucine specifically. Um, and so the, the next tier down would be supplementing with the full range of essential amino acids. If you're lacking it in your diet through a low protein, a low total daily protein intake for whatever reason, or if you are severely restricting your food selection, um, like various contexts, like, like veganism, uh, vegetarianism, etc. Uh, and of course, you, you know, my vegan friends will be like, oh no, you, you can just perfectly put together this vegan diet that covers everything. Well, most people are not good at doing that. Um, and, and then, and then the, you know, the, the final tier, the lowest tier would be needing to supplement the diet with leucine or branch chain amino acids, um, because of some sort of compromise in your ability to just ingest food. I mean, there, there is a, a body of research showing a benefit to branch chain amino acid supplementation in the older population, but I would still come in and argue that, you know, just get them some complete protein, find ways to bring it up. There are ways to do this. There's protein powder. Um, there's, uh, there's many different avenues to get protein up without having to kind of go a lower quality route where yes, you're providing the isolated um, amino acids that may be low in the diet, like leucine and the rest of the branch chain amino acids and or the full complement of uh, essential amino acids. But you're still compromising your intake of the matrix of nutrients that you could be getting from whole foods. And I consider protein powders to be just powdered forms of, of, of whole food in, in a sense. Um, of intact protein. So when, when I say, when I say high quality, um, minimally refined foods, protein powders are pretty much the exception there because they, even though they're powdered down, even though they're isolated, even though they're engineered to a high degree, they're still very nutrient dense and they still have all of their key constituents intact and, and present in the product. Yeah. Yeah. I could not agree more getting beef, chicken, eggs, salmon, cottage cheese has great leucine content, getting these things. I tell patients, you're going to have more satiation. And these are other things, nuances that matter when someone's trying to flexible diet, <laughs> mm. you know, uh, these are things that really matter. So, okay. So let's, um, before we transition to talking about fat and carbs, you'd mentioned vegan vegetarian diets. I, have concerns with kind of the push for the plant-based diets that people will, as we vilify meat, red meat in particular, that people will just eat less protein and turn to more carbs and fat as a percent of their calories with the push for plant-based diets. Can you talk about muscle protein synthesis specifically with plant proteins versus animal proteins <clears throat> so people understand the difference? Yeah. Plant proteins are less efficient gram per gram for maximizing muscle protein synthesis. So the, the muscle protein synthesis responses, it's a pretty important index. Cause like I said, it's, it's the short term marker of um, what 
typically would manifest in long-term muscle growth. So if you're missing, if you're, if you're compromising muscle protein synthesis in, in the short-term response basis, then chances are you're going to be compromising muscle growth in the long-term and plant proteins because or, or plant protein sources, because they are less digestible than animal proteins, then there is typically a lower anabolic response, gram per gram. <clears throat> this isn't to say that you can isolate certain plant proteins like pea protein and get a similar anabolic response to animal proteins. But if you're not doing that, if you're not buying tubs of, of you know, a, a carefully formulated plant protein powders, then you're compromising your ability to uh, be on the same playing field as omnivores, as far as muscle growth and retention goes. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I'm still a fan of animal, animal protein diets. <laughs> <clears throat> well, okay. let, 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 let me, uh, let me just say that there are certain um, constituents of, of animal protein sources that are absent in plant protein sources and that ultimately put them on a higher playing field in terms of muscle growth, in terms of muscle anabolism. And um, <clears throat> pardon me. And so these constituents are not fully known and some of them are, are looked at in a bad light, like cholesterol, for example, um, looked at in a bad light by, certainly by, by the uh, convention. However, they can still aid in processes like muscle anabolism and still can aid in processes like testosterone production. And so removing eggs from the diet can be a compromise for some people. And uh, even, I, I know saturated fat is, is one of the nutrients that conventional wisdom really takes, you know, takes a dump on all the time. But that's another thing. Like if, if you, if you have like zero saturated fat in your diet, you have less of the raw materials to build certain hormones like testosterone. And there are other, other nutrients in animal protein sources missing from plant protein sources, like for example, carnitine, creatine, um, taurine, uh, and a host of other nutrients that can contribute to muscle anabolism and muscle retention and also general health. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it, it's a game of trade-offs. You know, it is a game of trade-offs. Uh, if you've ever had a debate with, with a vegan who is on top of the research, and I have a bunch of vegan friends who are on top of the research, um, the, the humble ones will acknowledge the trade-offs that you're making and the sacrifices that you're making for um, ideological or personal ethical reasons. But yeah, there are trade-offs. Yeah. Okay, let's transition into talking about fat and carbs. How would one in a flexible dieting approach determine the other percent? So if protein, we, we leave protein where it's at and how does one determine whether they should balance fat and carbs, high carb, low fat, high fat, low carb? Okay, great question. If somebody does not have any athletic performance 
goals, any specific athletic performance goals, whether it's to improve or rather maximize. Okay. So what, what we're talking about athletic performance goals, we're talking really about it's maximizing stuff, maximizing and optimizing. So if you don't have any of those goals and you just genu genuinely, you're, you're, a, you're a soccer mom or a soccer dad who just turned 45 or 50. And over the last 20 years, you put on an average of a pound a year. Okay. <laughs> and you want to get back typical. to your, <laughs> right. It, it's very, it's very typical. And you want to get back to your, your, your college shape, let's say. And that's all you give a darn about. You know, you just want to get, get that 20 to 30 pounds off and, and feel, you know, feel like your younger self. Then in, in that case, kind of doesn't really matter beyond personal preference, whether you like low carb, high carb, moderate carb, um, as long as your protein target is sound, which would be right around 0.7 to 1.0 grams per, per pound of target body weight. And I'll throw in the little wrinkle there that if you want to go over that on protein, fine. I, I, there's, there's rarely any, any problem with overdoing protein in, in most cases, unless you have some sort of pre-existing concern with, with kidney disease or chronic kidney disease. And yeah, well, you know, we have to individualize for that too. But if you are the soccer mom or soccer dad who just wants to get off 20, 30, 40 pounds, the carb fat proportion of your diet doesn't, doesn't matter. But a lot of people you'll find once you get to certain goals, your goals may evolve towards performance, whether it's strength um, or whether it's endurance. And with competitive endurance goals, and the higher the level of competitive endurance, the more carbohydrate becomes important. And the higher the level of even mixed sports, um, team sports, the higher of a risk it is to underconsume carbohydrate for sports competition. And uh, even with certain goals like physique related goals. Like if you wanted to maximize muscle hypertrophy. So whether you wanted to win the nationals, the NPC bodybuilding championships, or, you know, one of the pro shows, or whether you just wanted to <laughs> be the buffest dude in your gym, <laughs> in the weight room area, <laughs> whether either, either one of those goals, it would be a compromise to be under carbing uh, dietarily. So, so yeah, the, for muscle hypertrophy, those who on average just stick with keto or close to it are going to have a pretty substantial compromise in putting on muscle mass. Now it's not impossible. It's just a highly inefficient way to go about it. So talk to me about endurance athletes. Um, I've interviewed Zach Bitter before. A ketogenic athlete set the hundred mile marathon record training ketogenically, very fat adapted, but uses carbs strategically, like a certain yes. number of grams per mile or, or whatnot. Mm -hmm. Do you think that for something that's really glycolytic, that carbs are essential? Do you think that endurance athletes maybe who can train and develop more metabolic flexibility and maybe that is advantageous? Like, what are your thoughts? Combination of things. Um, I'm naturally skeptical that Zach would represent the, 
the majority of athletes or, or that Zach would be able to provide kind of a practice guideline that you could set with just a baseline model on and then adjust it from there. I think Zach is kind of different. Um, he's a real cool guy, by the way. So shout out to, to Zach. Uh, I think that when you really kind of look at the amount of carbohydrate that he employs, it, it is lower than the conventional guidelines, but it, it's still pretty significant and it's still non-ketogenic. And so I think there's interesting things to, to be looked at in that area. Um, the whole concept of uh, fueling for the work required. So just even in when, when endurance athletes are in training, if they match their carbohydrate intake more closely to the type of training they're going to do that day, then I think they can economize on things like power to weight ratio and improve endurance that way. Uh, some days where they're not going hard, where there isn't necessarily a performance element, then they can pull way back on, on the carbohydrate and on, <clears throat> on other days where they're really pushing it, then, you know, they can utilize increased carbs to maximize the adaptations of that type of training. So in a sense, it can kind of be periodized. Um, but there's still data showing that even in highly trained endurance athletes, when they go a, a period for as, as short as a week on high carb, low fat, they, the enzymes that break down glycogen, which is the, the body stored form of carbohydrate, the glycolytic enzyme activity goes down like really quickly. And then when they're put to the endurance test under those conditions, then they end up getting outperformed by the high carb control groups and e even in elite endurance athletes. And this is work by uh, Louise Burke and her group. And so there is still that concern that the high carbers are still going to boink you in, in the final placings uh, if you're undercarbed as an endurance athlete, in spite of guys like Zach and maybe a couple other guys sort of breaking the mold. But what they do is a good thing too, because they, they make us rethink our conventional mindset and think, hmm, how can we you know, do things a little bit more like Zach without putting the athletes at risk for being underfueled? So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so yeah, it's outside interesting. Of, outside of athletic performance, do you think that there are people that could benefit from lower carbohydrate diets? And I'm not talking necessarily ketogenic, but I'm, you know, a hundred grams of carbs a day. The first population that comes to mind is to, uh, pre-diabetics and, and type two diabetics and people who are kind of cornered into a sedentary lifestyle through either injury or just habit or just <laughs> being natural born desk jockeys. Um, so pre-diabetics and, and, and pre-type twos have, have been shown to fare better on lower carbohydrate intakes. And in a few meta-analyses now, the, the upper cutoff appears to be right around 130 grams of carbohydrates, beyond which um, such intakes don't control um, glycemia as well. Uh, now there's, there's a debate there to, as to the long-term effects of, of carb restriction versus sort of the conventional guidelines. But um, I think there's a consistent enough body of data to show that type two diabetics and, and pre-diabetics don't do great on high carb. 
Yeah. Yeah. Definitely what, what we've seen clinically. And I think that this is a emerging area, you know, that's being studied with the advent of Verta Health and, you know, we're seeing more, more, uh, more research being published in that area. And I'm a fan that you probably don't know my entire story, Ellen, but yeah, I mean, I was a pre-diabetic, but I was an athlete. Like I was the college athlete. My dad was a professional football player. He's a diabetic, his parents, normal BMI, both diabetics, like somewhere in my ancestry, I <laughs> developed all the genes that, uh, love fat and not carbs, but my brain loves carbs. So that's, that's a tough place to live. <laughs> it's a tough place to live. Okay. So, um, at the, uh, end of your book, you know, one idea with flexible dieting and I'm not perfect, you know, you're not perfect. We all might have an excursion here and there, you know, we go to social event or, or a party or something like that. And in your book, you call it hedonic deviation. Um, Talk to us about what that concept really is. You know, people say like cheat meals and you'll find people that half the people hate that idea and half the people think that's a good idea. Like what is hedonic deviation and where does it play in flexible dieting? Yeah, the concept of uh, the cheat meal and maybe one of the more famous examples is when the rock sits down to his Sunday uh, pancake stack <laughs> or his, uh, you know, his, his, his various like French plate, toast and tequila on top. All that stuff. Right. Right. <laughs> the, the, the rolls, the, the, the rows and rows of sushi rolls and stuff like that. Um, that's not really a cheat meal. Uh, the, the main difference that makes cheat meals work or not is if they're planned. So in the literature, they took a look at what they called planned hedonic deviations or, or planned periods of, uh, abandoned. <laughs> and so as long as it's planned and, and as long as you know it's within the blueprint of what you're supposed to be doing, then you don't go off the rails and you can um, you have the mindset to kind of re-zero back on track. And so it, it's just it's mainly a mindset thing. So anybody who says I have a, a in quotes a cheat meal of this specific meal on Sundays, and yeah, I've, that, that's my cheat meal. That's no, that's your planned hedonic deviation that allows potentially greater compliance to, you know, the, the net hypocaloric conditions that you're trying to sustain or better compliance just in, in general to your dietary routine, because you have this week-long tolerance for whatever insipid <laughs> diet that you're putting up with through the course of the week. And then um, the weekend hits and then you have your pancake stack and then that will hold you for another, another week. Um, people have different choices for planned hedonic deviation. For some folks, it might be sushi for, uh, well, when I say sushi, I mean the Western style sushi that is really an abomination. <laughs> it's, it's a deep fried right. abomination. For sugar in there. and Oh man, it's creamy. It's deep fried. It's got Lord knows what everything. Oh man, it's got all the food groups and more. Um, so people have different different ways that they cheat. You know, some people like savory, some people like sweet, some people or just like a combination of of all the crap. Um, but as long as it's planned, then people will have the the right psychological mind frame to think, oh, oh I'm not destroying or sabotaging my diet with this meal. A week and, and it's fine. Um, so 
Planned hedonic deviations can also be diet breaks. So if somebody has a long road ahead, let's say they they have a substantial amount of, of body weight to lose, let's say 25 to 50 pounds. Um, just the idea that you can take breaks from the diet along the way gives people a whole lot more um, mental endurance to carry out the, the plan, especially if they know that they're going to be on this road for like six to 12 months. So planned hedonic deviations are really good. They're sort of like rest stops along the side of the road uh, in, in, in a marathon or, or rest stops along the side of the road where the end point is so far along the horizon that, you know, you can barely see it. I love it. Okay. So what Alan is saying, everybody is the train can take a detour, but it shouldn't fall off the tracks and start on fire. (laughs) Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I love it. I love it. Well, Alan, this has been so refreshing and I know that people are going to get so much out of your book, flexible dieting. So if you guys go check it out, it's sold where all books are sold and you can find Alan on social media. Alan, tell people where to find, I'm sure the rock, I'm sure DJ is listening. He probably wants to, you know, hire you as his coach. So tell people where to find you. (laughs) Well, tell him his buddy stone cold did real good with me. So, you know, (laughs) They still talk. Um, yeah, you, you can find me at alanaragon.com. Probably most active on Instagram. I don't know, uh, Facebook and Twitter ish occasionally, but, but yeah, I'm reachable. Alanaragon.com. My book is available at all major booksellers. Um, I can't believe you, you went through the whole thing that is uh, that's amazing. <laughs> I didn't read every word, but you know, took one of those well, sure. power reading courses, but I looked through every chapter. So good, good, yeah. good. No, I, I, I could tell you, you got into it and you got through, um, the meat of it and it's a lot. And so, so yeah, so kudos yeah. on that. And, um, thank you everybody for tuning in. You, you asked a bunch of mm, uncommon questions. So it, it was different and it was cool and it was technical, but uh, you brought things together so that folks could comprehend what we were getting at. So I appreciate that too. I love it. And I, I have three little girls, so I always have to figure out ways to, you know, bring it down to, I always say like, I'm going to teach my patient so that my 10 year old can understand this because, you know, that's at the end of the day, you and I could be really smart and brilliant and have all this awesome information. But if people don't understand how to apply it in their life, then we're not really changing people's lives. Right. We'll just be over here with our superpowers. Okay, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Alan. And thank every, thank you all for listening. Please, please, please leave your reviews, leave your comments, leave your questions and share this, you know, around so that people can hear about Ellen's work and people are going to get a lot out of this. So I'm, I'm super excited. Have a great day, everybody.